Thanks, Daniel. Well, my name is Ron Cool. I'm one of the pastors here, and again, I'd like to, to welcome all of you here and just let you know that we're glad that you've joined us. Last week, Sunday, we kicked off a, a new sermon series related really to a long-range planning process we started a couple of years ago and to a fundraising campaign that we're in right now, calling it Maximum Impact. And, and what it's about is saying, you know what, we want to make a maximum impact for Jesus Christ. We want to make a difference for him in our community and around the world, and we, we're committing ourselves to that. And, and certainly part of that is in uh, you know a couple of weeks, we're going to ask you to make pledges to help with some building stuff around here. We want to get that done as quickly as we can and, and, and go on with other ministry things. But, but really, more importantly, is, is, is the renewal of our spirits, that, that deepening of our spirits to say, you know what, God, use me. God, work through me. I, I, I want to be an agent of your kingdom. I want you to, want you to make a difference through it. I want my life to matter. I want to make a maximum impact. And so uh, aside from the monies, that's, that's one of the things that's really important. And, 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 and so we're doing this. And, and like Daniel said, we'll be praying this afternoon. I want to mention as well that Friday night, again, we've got an outing at Railside Country Club. Anybody's welcome. We're going to provide appetizers and, and sodas and so on. And um, if you're, you know, if, if you if you're going to go, please sign up. We need to know that you're going to be there. So uh, if you could do that, that would be great uh, as early as possible. That'll help us with getting some things ready. So making a maximum impact. Last week we started off and we kicked it off and we said, you know, if we're going to make a maximum impact for, for Jesus Christ, if we're going to make a maximum impact for God, we've got to know what God is doing. And, and so we went through the story of everything, the story of the Bible, four chapters. Real quick, let me remind you of that. You know, he said that God created everything, and it was good, all right? God created everything, and it was just the way it was supposed to be, that our relationship with God was perfect. Our relationship with each other was perfect. The world, everything went the way it was supposed to go. And, and we ourselves, we desired to do the good thing, right? We desired to do the right thing. Everything was exactly right. And then Adam and Eve and, and us in them somehow, they rebelled against God. They said to God, no, we don't want to do it your way. We want to do it our way. We want to be in charge. We want to be in control. And we call that the fall. And we said that everything was impacted. Our relationship with God was now one not based on, on, on love and service, but, but guilt and shame. And, and we were guilty of sinning against him and, and of not putting him in his proper place and so on. And our relationship with each other, we said Adam and Eve started to attack each other. And even our own selves, we all got a little bit twisted. We all got wrong. And it impacted everything. It impacted animals and stars and the sun and the moon. And and absolutely everything got twisted. We call that total depravity. Not that everything is as bad as it can be, but that, that sin touched everything. But God didn't stop there. God didn't say, fine, have it your way. What God said is, I'm going to make everything new. And he began the process of redemption that ultimately found its center in the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. All right. That's where we say on the, on the cross of Jesus Christ, our diseases were healed and our, and our wounds were healed. On the cross of Jesus Christ, our, our sins were paid for. In the resurrection of Jesus Christ, death was conquered. And, 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 and Jesus, as it were, redeemed all things. He, he paid the price to make everything new. And that led to chapter 4, where we are today, and that is restoration. And, and, and we said that what God is all about is he's restoring all things. He's making all things new. There we are. He's making everything the way it's supposed to be. And we said it's, it's not just people, though it starts with people, but, but, it's, but it's everything. It's relationships. It's, it's governments. It's, it's all things are going to be made new. Everything is going to be made right. And, and, and right at the end, we got into what I want to get into this morning, and we said that God is restoring all things, but that amazingly God is doing that through us. 
That Jesus Christ has won the redemption. What he did on the cross, we cannot repeat. We cannot do that over. What he did there is absolutely unique. But now he says, now I give you my spirit. Now I give you my power. And you are going to go out and you are going to restore all things. You are going to be the ones through whom I work. God works through his people. Jesus works through his people. And and I want to kind of push it a little bit on something that at first you might not say, that's not really very controversial or anything, and I don't intend to be controversial, but, but I want us to recognize something this morning and, and focus on something in particular, because in particular, God works through his people, but, but specifically, I think we have to recognize God works through his church. God works through his church. God works in a lot of ways, but, but primarily, God works through his church, and so that brings us to, to really the topic of today of, of how does God work, and what I want to argue what I want to suggest, maybe is better, what I want to suggest is that, is that the church is God's primary tool. That the church is God's primary tool. And we need to recognize that and love the church and, and grow the church and be passionate about the church, okay? And so I want to focus on that. In order to do that, I want to look at some words of Jesus, a, a wonderful story, a key story in the life of Jesus. It's found in Matthew 16. If you've got Bibles with you, I'll have it on the screen. But Matthew 16, starting at verse 13, when we, where we read these words. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, Now, most of the time when we get to a name like that, Caesarea Philippi, we just kind of go on, right? It's like, okay, I don't know where it is, but it's someplace. It's probably in Israel. It's not a big deal. This is one of those places where William Barclay, Ray Vanderlaan are so helpful in in helping us understand that the place is really significant for the story. The place is very significant for the story. So I want to tell you a little bit about Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi. First, let's locate it. Here's a map we got of, of Israel there in the green, okay? You got Israel there. You got the Mediterranean Sea, a little boat there on the, on the Mediterranean Sea. Jerusalem is down in the south, all right? Here's where Jerusalem is. That's where Judea is in the south. Jesus spent most of his life and, and most of his ministry up by the Sea of Galilee, okay? Nazareth is up there, Capernaum is up there, Tiberias is up there. That's, that's really where Jesus did a lot of his ministry, up by the Sea of Galilee, okay? Now, when he took them to Caesarea Philippi, he took them 25 miles further north, okay? Caesarea Philippi is right there, okay? It's at the very edge of Israel. You can see it's right on the border into Syria there, or Phoenicia as it's listed there. But it's right on the border of that. It's, it's right on the edge of Israel, and I think that's going to be significant. Well, we'll see why in a minute. It's also, and, and you can't see it very well, but there are hills there, and it's right at the foot, right at the base of Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon was the tallest mountain in Israel, okay? It, it's the one that, it's the only place in Israel where you can go snow skiing. Uh, in the winter, it's, it's got snow all over it, and they actually do snow ski there. But it's the, it's the tallest mountain. It's very north of Israel, and, and really anything beyond that is, is not really places where Jewish people go. In fact, we're going to see Jewish people didn't even really go to Caesarea Philippi. So that's the place, all right? It is, um, in order to understand it again, uh, some things about the city itself. It was a Roman city. Uh, even though it was in Israel, it was a very Roman city. And what I mean by that, it had Roman education, it had Roman roads, it had Roman government, it had Roman... It's Caesarea Philippi, Caesar, right? It's, it's a city that was dedicated to Caesar. And Philip was the son of Herod, the king who tried to kill Jesus when Jesus was born. Philip is one of his sons who rules in this area. So this was kind of his capital city. This is where he governed from, and it was a very Roman city. It was a very pagan city. It was a city that was involved in emperor worship, okay? 
It was a place where, you know, you could go and, and they would call you to worship the emperors. They say, Caesar is Lord. Caesar is the one who gives us life. Caesar is the one who holds on to us, all right? So it was a, a Roman city, a lot of Jewish people. In fact, rabbis said no Jew would go there. No good Jew would ever go there. It was also the center for the worship of the god Pan, all right? The god Pan. You might have a picture in your mind. Pan was the god who was half goat and half human, okay? And, and you might picture him playing a flute of some sort, right? That's what we think of with Pan. Um, Pan was not some innocent shepherd, okay? Pan was nasty and gross and, and, and really, really pagan, okay? Pan was a god, of, uh, a, a god who was into a lot of sexual perversion, um, and, and so this was a place where that was going on. Pan was also a god of fear, okay? That's where we get the word panic, okay? Pan was a god of fear, a god of, and, 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 and so that's what was celebrated there. That's what was going on there. Um, this is a, a rendition of what it might have looked like in that day. That's Mount Hermon in the background, and this is built into it. Um, the ruins are still there. That's why we can have an idea that this is probably an accurate representation. But this is where the Temple of Pan was, okay? This is where they would go and they would worship and they would engage in any number of things. And, and you can see it goes back into the mountain. And the way that fit in with Pan, again, the mountain was a place of darkness. The mountain was a place of, of mystery and fear. And, and so that's what's going on there, all right? Now, you'll notice something in this drawing here. Um, there we go. It should come around. There we are. That Right behind that building there, it looks like there's a cave. It is. And, and that cave is still there. And, and again, this is a lesson that others, some of you may have heard Ray Vanderland do probably better than I am. But it looks today like this. Again, you can see some of the ruins there, people who are there. But there's this wide open cavern, really. And it goes deep down into the mountain. And, and, and then it's got water all in it. And in and, and that day, I don't know if they've said but they, it was sort of like it was bottomless, okay? They, they didn't know how deep it went because the water just kept going and going and going. And, and what this was known as, what this was known as was one of the places where our world and the underworld met. This was a place where our world and Hades met. It was a place where, where the, the demons, if you think of Greek mythology, Roman mythology, you think of, of the river Styx, S-T-Y-X, the river Styx. Here's a, a depiction of that, right? That's where the underworld is, and you have to go through the river Styx. You have to cross the river Styx in order to get to the underworld, or for the, from the underworld to come into our world. That's what it's talking about, and that's why this place was known as the Gates of Hades, all right, that's why this place, it was a place where, where these two worlds, the world of the underworld, the world of Satan, really, and our world met. It was a gate. It was a portal. It was, you know, one of those places where, where traffic would take place. And, and, and so, again, you, you take that and you say, okay, this is, this is part of what pan worship was all about. It was this really mysterious, frightening, scary place. And again, no Jew would ever go there. Now, we don't know if Jesus was right at this site. Some argue that Jesus was standing right in these places here when he was talking with his disciples. All we know is that he was in the region. And, and, and I think that's important for us, and, and we'll come back to seeing why that is. All right, back to the text. Matthew 16, verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? That was a title that he used for himself, Son of Man. So he says, oh, who, do, who, who do people say that, that, that I am? How, how, how does it go about answering out there? And it's interesting to think about their answer in terms of answers people give today. Because what, what they said is this. They replied, some say John the Baptist, 
who had died, and they said, Jesus is now John the Baptist, come back to life. Others say Elijah, again, who was dead, but had come back to life, that Jesus was a voice like his. Still others, Jeremiah, or, or one of the prophets. And, and, and so the answer they give is that most people said Jesus was a prophet of some sort. He was obviously a man of God. He was obviously wise. He was obviously that. And, and I think about it, and, and I think so many people in our world answer the same sort of way. You know, Jesus just kind of tried to teach us to love, and your problem is you make him into something else. And, and even you look at Islam. <laughs> Islam sees Jesus as a prophet, right? Islam sees Jesus as somebody who was, who was spoken to uh, through God, by God, through whom God spoke, right? I mean, they say this much, and, and there are a lot of people, but this is not enough. If all we say about Jesus is that, well, he's a prophet, he was a wise man, he was a good guy, he had some great ideas about how we need to learn to love each other and so on, that's not enough. That's not all we need to say about him. Jesus goes on, he says, what about you? Who do you say that I am? And in some ways, this is the fundamental question for every human being since this time. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, and he said, you are the Messiah. You are the Christ. You are the Son of the living God. You are the hope of the world. You are the one who can make all things new. You are not just some prophet. You are somehow more than that. You are the Messiah. You are the chosen one of God. You are the anointed one of God. You are the one through whom God is going to make all things new. And, 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 and Simon gets it right. Simon recognizes this is far beyond just another person. This is far beyond just a prophet. But he is God himself. He is the Son of the living God. And he is God himself. And Jesus replies and says, Blessed are you, Simon. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And then comes the next verse, and the next verse is where I want to spend our time uh, this morning, the rest of what we've got left here. I want to spend it on Matthew 16, verse 18, because Jesus goes on, and he says these amazing words. He says, and I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock, and the next words are key, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. On this rock, Jesus says, I will build my church. And, and that's what I want to focus on, those words, I will build my church. And, and I want to say four things about that statement that I think we need to recognize, okay? Four things that are really important for us still in our day. The first one is this. First, Jesus established the church, Jesus established a church. You say, well, of course he did. It's his body, right? It's his family. It's all that stuff. No, the reason I want to I focus on that, the reason I want to talk about that is, is because there are a whole lot of Christians, and there are still a whole lot of Christians who say, Jesus never intended there to be a church, right? Jesus just intended to have followers. Jesus just intended us to, even if we knew he was the son of God, but he didn't call us to form a church. He didn't call us to form an organization. He didn't call us to do anything like that. It was Peter or Paul or it was the disciples. It was somebody else who, who started the church. And it was never Jesus' idea to have this thing called the church. Jesus wanted us all just to, to hang out and love each other. Jesus didn't, you know, organizations kill. Organizations kill the spirit. And so it can't be that Jesus started an organization. But I want to say it was Jesus who established the church. He says, I will build my church. And the word that he uses, ecclesia, is the same word that Paul uses, that Peter uses in talking about the church. Jesus intended there to be a church. Jesus intended there to be a group of his followers who would live in community together and who would love each other and serve each other and bring his presence into the world. Jesus established the church, all right? Not Peter or Paul, not another human being. 
And, and, and what happens when we come to Jesus? And again, the center of everything is coming to Jesus. But when we come to Jesus, Jesus calls us to be a part of his family. Jesus calls us to be a part of his body. Jesus calls us to be a part of his church. I, I, I want us to be able to recognize that we can go so far as to say we cannot come to Jesus without also coming to his church. Now, the church doesn't save us. Jesus does. But, but what I want us to recognize is that we cannot come to Jesus unless we also come to the church. That Jesus calls us to be his family. Jesus calls us to be his body. In fact, this, I think, is, is, and make sure you listen to me carefully on this one, okay? This is one of the important things I, I want to say here, and it's true, but we have to figure out exactly what it means, okay? But I think it's important for us to recognize this fact, that the church, the church is the only organization Jesus formed. The church, the church is the only organization Jesus formed. Now, a couple of clarifications. Not to say that Jesus doesn't work through other organizations, I mean, there are Christian education institutions, there are Christian political parties, there are Christian relief agencies, there are Christian, all sorts of different Christian ministries. And, and I think God works through those, okay? Don't, I'm not saying that all those are worthless and wrong and you shouldn't support those. No, there are other ministries and, and there are other good things, and I think God works through those. But I think one of the things that we've done is, is some, for some of us, and, and, I, and I think I fall into this sometimes too, we get so so into saying God's kingdom comes in all these different ways, and it does, that we forget the fact that the church is the only one that God really formed, that, that, that Jesus himself talked about. Again, it's not that these other ones are not important. The fact is a lot of times they stepped in when the church was failing, and, and, and so shame on us. I'm not saying that at all, but, but I think we need to recognize that there is something special about the church. And, and I think for many of us, we say, well, that's not really my thing. I'm not that much into the church. My, I really love this ministry over here. This is the one I love. You know, I'm glad you love that ministry. But Jesus never said, let me establish and I will build my educational institution. Jesus never said, I will build my political party. Jesus never said, I will build my relief organization. Jesus never said, I will build. He said, I will build my church. I will build my church. And I think we need to recognize that there is something significant, something important about a church, about a local body of believers, about learning to live together in that family, about learning to be the family of God. And, and, and that's why part of what we do is we talk about maximizing impact. I, I think we just got to recognize that the church matters. This is the one that, that God said he established, that Jesus said, I will build my church. So it's not to say God doesn't work through those other things. Again, they are, they are great. They are wonderful but I think we've got to recognize at the center is the church. Second thing I want to clarify, though, is it's not to say the church is exactly right all the time. Okay? I, I, some of us say, yeah, I believe Jesus wanted to build a church, but does it look like what it's supposed to? Are, are we really? I, I mean, come on. And, and, and I want to be very clear about saying we're continuing to try to figure it out. Jesus says, I will build my church, but what exactly did he mean? Think about the way we use the word. How do we use the word church? At least in three different ways. Some of you said this morning, I'm going to church. And you meant this worship service, right? This is church. I, I sometimes say, I'm going to go drop something off at church. And I mean this building. Church. But of course, what Jesus was talking about and what's central, what's most important is not the building, is not the service necessarily we do right now. It's the people. It, it, it's the people. 
the people of God gathering together, living in community. And I think, you know, again, some people will say, well, they, God never intended there to be pastors. He just wanted us all to hang out and everybody just kind of share and do this stuff. Now, from the beginning, there were leaders. The apostles were leaders, and it was built on the foundation of the apostles and so on. And, 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 and there were people set aside to do works of deacons and, and elders. And, and, and so I, I'm not saying it's perfect, but... I think Jesus intended us to have the structures and somewhat similar. And so, again, part of what I want to challenge you to do is just say, God, help us to be your church. Help us to really be your... If we are supposed to be the presence of the kingdom of God, if we are supposed to be the main impact in this world for Jesus Christ, if that's who we're supposed to be, then, friends, we got to get serious about trying to be the church. we got to get serious about trying to, 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 to live out the life that God called us to live. You read the book of Acts, which is all about the church. You read the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2, and this was a community of believers. They shared their stuff. They supported each other. They met together. They studied the apostles' teaching. They, they broke bread together. They took communion together, and, and, and numbers were added, to, and, and, and believers were added to their numbers every day. I want to be that kind of a church. That's what Jesus was looking to establish, a dynamic, alive body. But I, I, again, I want to just say, as we think about this, and, and not just in terms of building, but just in terms of our church life, somehow we have to recognize that the church is at the center of what Christ is doing. It's the only organization that Jesus formed. All right, so Jesus established the church. The next one kind of just flows out of that. Jesus is still building his church today. This is the second thing of the four I want to say. Jesus is still building his church today. Not Ron. Not Daniel. Not another human being, not even Joel Osteen, is building the church. And, and it's interesting. We were talking about it with a group of folks. We're looking at doing a church plant. You see, even there, I just did it, right? And, 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 and you say, so we plant a church. No, Jesus plants a church. He uses us to do it. If we're planting a church, if we're doing a satellite, if we're doing this, if this is Ron's church, we've got big problems. Because it's got to be the church of Jesus. If it's Ron's church, it's going to be short-sighted. If it's George's church, it's going to be short-sighted. If it's Daniel's church, if it's any of our churches other than Jesus Christ, it's got to be, it's going to be problematic. And, and, and so Jesus, through his Holy Spirit, is still building his church today. And again, the key word there, I think, in the, in the text is, I will build my church. I will build my church. And so we're saying, Jesus, what do you want us to look like? Jesus, what does it mean for us to live as a church together? I think it's, again, it's not easy to figure that out. In the 20th century, right? are we in the 21st century now? Yeah, okay. Um, I, 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 that number thing is crazy. Anyway, um, what does it mean? The early church didn't have buildings. We do. I think that's, obviously, I think that's okay. But what does it mean for us to share life together? What does it mean when, when we can drive all over the place? I mean, th- th- think of the difference when you had a parish, church, and everybody lived within walking distance of the church. A synagogue had to be within, I don't know if it was three miles of everybody. If there was a Jewish person more than three miles away, they had to start another synagogue because you couldn't be expected to walk further than that, and you needed to have your community around you. What does it mean for us in the 21st century? How does that look? I don't always know. I certainly don't always know. But let's pray about it, and let's seek it. Let's really seek to be the church, a church that can make a difference, all right? So Jesus is still building his church. The third thing that I want to touch on here is, is that Jesus is building his church on, on this rock. 
The church is built on this rock. Again, Jesus said, you are Peter, that is rocky. He gave him the name, the rock. You are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church. Okay, that, There has been probably as much ink spilled on those words as anything else uh, in, in Scripture. What did Jesus mean when he said, on this rock? What's the rock? Who's the rock? Where's the rock? What, what's he talking about? And, and I'm going to give you four possibilities here, and I'll tell you the one I think that is the highest, but it could be one of those cases where Maybe all of them have some truth to them. Uh, The first one, and this is the one the Roman Catholics will point to, is that it's Peter, right? That Jesus said, you are Peter, you are the rock, and on this rock, on Peter, I will build my church. And so the Roman Catholic Church says, you see, Peter was the first pope, and then we have popes, 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 all the way down to the present pope. I don't think that's what Jesus had in mind. Not Peter as pope. I think it was Peter as apostle, in Ephesians 2, Paul says that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, right? And, and, and so we are built on the foundation of people like Peter and, and, and their confession that Jesus is the Christ. Okay, we're built on the foundation of the apostles, their teaching, their Matthew and, 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 and others who, who, who taught us that. And, and as they share their words through the other gospels. So in that sense, Peter is the rock because Peter is one of the apostles. Peter is one of the original teachers. It, it could be that what really, and this is probably the one that I, I would suggest is the main one, it's, it's really the, the, the rock is Peter's confession. It's that you are the Christ. It's that Jesus is the son of the living God, and the church is built on that confession and nothing else. The church is not built on being slick. The church is not built on meeting everyone's needs. The church is built on the confession that Jesus Christ is the hope of the world, that Jesus Christ is the one who can change lives. And, and that profession, that confession of Peter. And I think that's really what it is. It's on this confession, on the the Peter who says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Others kind of push it, and and this one doesn't make as much sense to me. Sometimes people will say it's Jesus himself. In other places, Jesus says, I'm the rock, right? He's the cornerstone. And that might be part of it, but it doesn't seem like that. It seems like he's talking to Peter here and, and talking about Peter. So yeah, that's possible. The other one, and, and it gets into the arena of of where they were, was that it's on this rock, is in this place. And, and that, that's why you come back to where, where were they? Again, Caesarea Philippi. They're in the middle of, of this most pagan place in Israel. They are right on the border of all the Gentiles. And perhaps what Jesus is saying, and I think there's something to this one as well, perhaps what Jesus is saying in this place, in the middle of the darkness, is where I will build my church. And, and, and he calls us as a church to be people who go into those places. He calls us as a church to be people who tear down the darkness, all right? And he calls us not to retreat, but he calls us to be active, to be loving our neighbors, to be going out, and to, and to be in the middle of those places where there is just toughness and brokenness and sometimes really evil stuff going on that we in the church are supposed to be in this place. Again, I think most of it, the rock that that it's built on is is that confession that that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, all right? So Jesus established his church. Jesus is still building his church today. Third, it's built on the rock, okay? It's built on the rock and the confession of of Peter and in the midst of that place. And, And then the fourth thing, and, and, and again, this is just a, an absolute essential thing for us to recognize. The church is called to storm the gates of hell. The church is called to storm the gates of Hades. And that's powerful. That is unbelievable. Jesus says, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Now, that word overcome can be read in, in two different ways. 
And again, I'm going to go with a both and here, okay? On the one hand, this word can become, kind of the way it's translated in the New International Version, kind of a defensive thing, okay? That the gates of Hades, the gates of the underworld, the gates of death, the gates of sin, the gates of Satan, that those things will not be able to destroy the church, that the gates of hate, that Satan cannot destroy the church, that, that, that the church will not fall, that the church will stand strong. And, and if you just stop, that's a pretty amazing thing. You think about this. If anybody would have bet on either the church or the Roman Empire, all the smart money was on the Roman Empire. I, I mean, and you got the Ottoman Empire, and you got other empires, and you got other, you know, and, and, but you know what? All those other empires are gone. The church is still here. You think of companies that have been, I mean, Standard Oil, and, and I know GM is still around, but GM declared banker. All these things that we think are going to be permanent, all these things that we cannot imagine not existing forever, guess what? Every one of them goes out of existence because they don't have the power of Jesus Christ behind them. Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not stand against it. They will not overcome it. They will not be able to destroy it. And so when Satan attacks, we can know this, we will not be defeated. Again, it's not to say it's perfect. It's not to say we always get it right. But the promise of Jesus Christ is that his church will endure. The promise of Jesus Christ is that we will not be overcome. So on the one hand, that word can be read that way, and I think that's part of what's intended, that, it, that, that we can know kind of that, that Satan cannot overcome us. But the same word is one that can also be translated in a much more offensive, not offensive, offensive, but on the offense, okay, in a much more active way, uh, something like this. I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not be able to stop it. And that's a powerful image, right? That's powerful to think about, and I think that's part of what Jesus had in mind, that what Jesus is saying here is that we in the church are, are not just passive. We in the church are not called to just be defensive, but we in the church are called to be on the offense. We in the church are called to go into the dark places. We in the church are called to reach out to those who don't know Jesus Christ. We're called to reach out and to love those who are broken. We're called to, to be in those places. We're called to go in those places, not offensively, okay? The, 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 too often we take a passage like this and we become offensive and say, we, we, we're at war and we're going to destroy the world. No, yes, we are called to be on the offense. We are called to overcome the gates of hell. We are called to reach down and pluck out those whom Satan has claimed as his own. But we do it the same way Jesus did through sacrifice and service and love and giving. We don't do it by destroying. We do it by loving the same way Jesus got to us. But that's who we're called to be. We are called to be a church in action. We are not called to be spectators. We are not called to be people who just come and get fed. We are called to be people who are bringing the gospel into our workplaces. We are called to be people who are bringing the gospel into our schools. We are bringing the gospel into our neighborhoods. Because God calls us to storm the gates of hell. God calls us to move forward. God calls us to be a part of that. And, and, And friends, that's where we want to make a maximum impact. That's where we want to make the most difference we can make. Bill Hybels, a pastor in Chicago, actually was raised in a, in a Christian Reformed church in Kalamazoo. Um, Bill Hybels made a statement that is, is I think, really challenging and uh, I think understood correctly. I think he's right. But as a pastor and as a church member, the statement he makes really challenges me. What he says is the local church is the hope of the world. The local church is the hope of the world. Now, he's not theologically wrong. He's not saying, oh, you need the church more than you need Jesus. No, Jesus is the only one who can change lives. Jesus is the hope of the world. But what he said is Jesus has given us his presence. And the way his presence goes is through the local church. 
more than any other way. The primary tool God uses is the local church. Fascinating to hear. I'm going to take time to do this a minute. Fascinating to hear how he came to this. He's told the story. Some of you may have heard it. He, is, uh, he was in Puerto Rico, I believe, getting done with a vacation, going to fly back to Chicago. And uh, while he was in the airport there, he said he noticed two brothers, it looked like, one maybe seven, one nine, something like that. And he said, you know, they were kind of just starting off like brothers, you know, kind of this thing to each other and kind of tussling. He said, and then all of a sudden it just exploded. And the nine-year-old, he said he was just taking the seven-year-old and pounding him. And he said, I mean, he's pounding his head against the cement floor. And I mean, this kid, it looks like he's going to kill him. And, and, and so Heibel says, I went up there and I grabbed them both and, 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 and pushed them apart, you know, and they're still trying to get at each other. And he said, hold them apart. The, the, somebody from the airline comes and says, are you Mr. Heibel's? Yeah, we need you to get on the plane. And he said, I can't leave these two here. Where are their parents? Who's going to watch them? They said, we'll get somebody. So they got somebody to watch the kids, and he got on his plane. He said he was flying back to Chicago, and he said, I wanted to just put it out of my mind, and God wouldn't let that happen. And so he started to think about it, and he thought, okay, what's the future for these two kids? What's the future for these two kids? He said, right now it's fists in a cement floor. When's it going to turn to sticks and then guns? He said, the trajectory they're on is, is not a good one. It's not a flourishing future that they have. And, and then he says, and what can change that? Some Puerto Rican law? Some big business coming down? He said, the only thing that can ultimately change a kid's heart is, is Jesus Christ. The only thing that can clean, really deep down change that kid's heart is Jesus Christ. And he said, that's when it hit me. It's the local church. He said, you know what, I don't think we want to just send a missionary down there and say, let me tell you about Jesus and then leave it. He said, no, Jesus established the church. We live together. We commune together. We invite a kid like this in and say, let us show you what love is. Let us show you about the love we've experienced. Let us do that for you and with you and let us walk alongside of you. And as Christ flows through us, there's the possibility that he will change that child's life. And in that sense, the local church is the hope of the world. I don't know about you, but that both is, is both for me very exciting and extremely scary. Because I look at it and I say, I don't want that pressure. I just want just to be, be, you know, telling people that Jesus loves. I don't want to feel like, God, you're counting on me to bring your presence into those places. But there's some truth to it. The local church is the hope of the world. The question is, can we do it looking like we are? And and, and then Hybels goes on and he says this. He says, there's nothing like the local church when it's working right. Its beauty is indescribable. Now again, you can all picture how when it's wrong. But when the church is the church, he's exactly right. Its beauty is indescribable. Its power is breathtaking. Its potential is unlimited. No other organization on earth is like the church. Nothing even comes close. That's what Jesus had in mind when he said, I will build my church. I will build a community where my present will live and where people will go out and invite others to experience my grace and my love and my life-changing power. I will build my church. I want to be that kind of church. I know we won't get there, but I want to get a little more closer to that. Okay, it's not good English. I want to get closer to that. I want us to become more and more that kind of church and, and, and just see what Jesus does that's why I say yeah I, I, do we need to make commitments do we need some new building stuff I think we do 
But more than that, we need new hearts. And we need to recommit ourselves to making the difference. And so I just close with this question. Will we be the church Jesus wants us to be? Let's pray together. Father, you said through your son, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Whether we look at us and it doesn't seem like you got a whole lot to work with here. We bicker and we fight and we're foolish and our lives are weak. And so, Father, fill us with your grace, not so that we become strong in ourselves, but so that through us people can see you, that we can be a community here of people who have found the one who can give us life, the one who can forgive our sins, the one who can give us purpose. And Lord, help us in this community to be a place where people say, I want to go there. I want to experience that. I want to be part of that family. I don't have a family like that. Make us into a church that is breathtaking in beauty and is full of your power. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you please stand to receive God's parting word of benediction? Again, there are going to be some folks in the prayer room after the service if you'd like to talk with somebody uh, or meet with somebody. People of God, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you and go with you. And may we be the church. Amen.